All right, here we are. Here we are. And the Data Protection Breakfast Club with Anjali from Facebook, who you now work with. Yes, we're on the same team. We yeah. get to do all kinds of hard things together. Double Facebook episode. So uh, yeah. excited to talk about what 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 really uh, we we like about her so much is she's so uh, thoughtfully outspoken yeah. um, about her views. Doesn't doesn't unapologetic hold back right and so that that's that's really wonderful one of her best qualities in addition to being ridiculously sharp and uh incisive lawyer who picked up privacy just three years ago which is yeah incredible yeah. so you mean yeah, with her uh, every day yeah i mean i mean i've only worked with her a short time i've known her much longer but like Anjali's one of the most like principled people in the privacy game sure. like uh uh and and that doesn't mean that she's not flexible or, or not unwilling to compromise. It means she works from a set of values. And I think they're, the, the values really are like fairness, right? And equity. Like I see every decision I've seen her make in the short time I've been here has essentially revolved around those two things um, and everything else comes after. And look, what an amazing resource for a company like Facebook that's facing the types of challenges that it's facing. And and forced to make some of the decisions that it has to make based on the power of its platform to have a strong female, intelligent, values-based voice in the company, in a position of power to influence the decision-making. Like people Facebook's really like- It's people like her when there are critics for Facebook about data issue or like yeah. something, it's critics out there all over the place uh media articles and things it's people like her that i know and you know that are inside these companies working on these very complex problems yep. the, that's the 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 they are no doubt hiring as many people like her and you to attack these incredibly complex problems so that's where that's where the the you know people should feel that things are moving in a good direction in, in those kinds of places and um yeah, I totally agree, man. And and like, yeah, and, and I'll say this other piece, you know, I had my reservations about coming to Facebook. I've been honest with Facebook and with the world about that. Like, I, you know, I've been a critic at times, a pretty strong one, and I'm still critical in some ways. Um, her presence here for me was a principal factor in deciding that I would come here because I know she wouldn't be here if the company was not trying to do the right thing. She wouldn't be here. Because I believe in her principles that strongly. And, uh, you know, we had a conversation before I joined and um, she was honest and candid with me about the, 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 the good things and the bad things about coming. And I decided that joining forces with her was the best thing I could do, not just for my career and all these things, but like to have the most impact at the point of my career where I should be having the most impact. Right. And I love Salesforce, as you know. And still do and hold that company in the highest regard. Um, but if we're talking about my most productive years when I can exercise the most influence and have the most energy backed by experience, this felt like the place where I could spend the next, you know, five years or whatever or longer um, working on the hardest issues uh, with the most resources, with the best people to try to drive, you know, good outcomes for the world. Uh, it's an awesome it's an awesome responsibility um, that y'all are taking on. And so I'm really psyched for this conversation because she's so, she's gonna be so thoughtful on these issues. And um, here we go. Let's go do it. All right, here we are. 
Here we are. Breakfast club. Here we are. Fight the power episode. Public enemy with someone who's not our enemy whatsoever. <laughs> but we fight the power together. Anjali from Facebook. And when we asked you to join this, you did not work with Pedro. I did not. <laughs> but now not. here we are. Now we're here to fight the power. To, now we're fighting the power together. That's right. That's right. We're trying to change the change the path of the universe. It's nice that we're all wearing black hoodies. I don't think we super planned that. I mean, I showed up at the last minute, but it, we're all wearing black hats and black hoodies, and that was not planned. This is legit. That's right. And uh, we always say here we are because it's an homage to our favorite or my favorite Instagram account, which we have to tell you about, which is just another food review page. <laughs> just another food review page and uh pedro sent me the link to the new one you beat me to it uh yeah it's so good he just reviews restaurants and he always starts with all right we're here <laughs> and it's like always some like strip mall joint you know like the last one was like gyro, gyro shop in like new jersey <laughs> he's like super super enthusiastic hey you know what, what, what's um we got to connect with that guy i'm gonna send him a dm andy and Please. i know it's a little bit of a wild card but we got to get him on the pod he should at least <laughs> do the intro <laughs> that's <laughs> right what was the one not to get derailed here too much i love this guy though what was the one restaurant that was mania like pizza mania like we're at pizza mania here <laughs> <laughs> we go he's great we should go. I'll tag you in it. I'll tag you in it. I'll tag you in it. It's good. It's good. It's good. And I, and truth be told, like the reviews are actually pretty good. Like substantive. I don't, like it's good. Like the, the content is good, but it's also just way too intense for a food review. So it just works perfect. It's really good. And it's just an example of great Instagram content. So great Instagram the, content. The company you work for keeps pumping out stuff. <laughs> that, that yeah. I'm here for it. Yeah, and you can't make content like that because it's a little bit more long form on TikTok. Just saying. <laughs> Just get those jabs in. <laughs> Just saying. Yeah. Well, let's dive in. So let's do it. Yeah, let's do. Let's talk about how we met. I don't even know, honestly, if I remember. Probably My name? through Julia. Through Julia. And did through, you? Come- uh, yeah. So oh, I started. You know what happened? I came back from maternity leave and I was at App Nexus, repping that razzle dazzle over here. And uh, <laughs> Julia was like, hey, the GDPR is coming. I can't do this by myself. You have to help me. And so I was like, yeah, let's do it. So uh, I started doing privacy work. I can't even believe I started doing privacy just three years ago. <laughs> That's crazy. Three years ago? That didn't even make yeah, sense. Man. Three years, 2017. Hmm. I feel like you've been doing this for 50 years, but okay. Yeah. So AppNexus had a a thing where there were a lot of lawyers from Latham and Watkins, of course, but also there were a lot of like corporate transactional M&A people that converted their, their work a little bit. And then you're, you're an example of that. Like, how did that, how did that go for you? Because you did traditional M&A and that work in law firms and stuff. Yeah. So actually before uh, at Nexus, I can't, I was at um, Davis and Gilbert. So I was doing M&A, but for the agencies. Yeah. For like publicists, publicists, depending on who you ask. 
and uh, and Omnicom and all those all all those big ones. And so I had like a little bit of an understanding of their businesses and like what was going on with them and who they were acquiring all these small companies. But really what happened is, yeah, Julia was just like, I know you, you're gonna be able to do this work, come work here. And how did the transition go? I mean, there were like three of us, four, <laughs> you know? Yeah. So Shout uh, out to Gary at uh, Davidson Gilbert. Is he still there? I, I hope so. Who is? Gary Keibel. Yeah, he's still there, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Okay, I don't want to shoot. I don't want to shout out the wrong employer, but yeah. Shout well, out to Gary. Oh, yeah, that's, that's that's right. Gary before, and I go way back. Before we met Gary, before you know, like at DataZoo, we worked with Davis and Gilbert. But like before that happened, I was at in-house at TD Ameritrade, and I was doing our contract. We changed uh, our ad agency, like our big contract with our ad agency, over to um, to this this large agency. And our, it was such a big agreement that we all like flew and met and negotiated it together. And there was this lawyer in the room from Davis and Gilbert. And I was a young punk. I'd never heard of anyone, never heard of like the firm, never heard like anything at all. And apparently this yeah, guy, Ron, Ron, Ron is like a major ad, you know, advertising lawyer, like maybe yeah. one of the best advertising lawyers in the country. And I'm just like this 26 year old kid across the table from him, like fighting about patent troll stuff which doesn't really have to do with the advertising work we were doing but but it was like the hot thing at the time and I was like we need uncapped liability for for these patents and he was like that's <laughs> not really relevant but uh okay <laughs> so, like, shout out shout out yeah shout out to TD Ameritrade man like didn't they merge with somebody I feel like there's like a whole lot of stuff first they you know bought, I, I, hold yeah. on a second hold on a second they i just realized i have like an amazon product on my desk well, i'm not here to do free advertising <laughs> like hold on. i literally just noticed that it was in the shot no shout out to amazon but a hey, shout out to panther coffee a real small business um from my hometown anyway sorry andy td ameritrade got acquired somewhere or or, or merged with somebody did i hear this it, yeah first they bought scott trade and then schwab acquired them. Schwab is what it is. Okay. Sorry. I was just making sure I wasn't totally confused there. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, so Anjali, so all right, let's back let's back talk to this. So worked at the firm, went to uh work with Julia. And how long were you there? For almost five years. I left right I left right before my right before my fifth no, that's not right. Uh yeah, yeah, that's right. About almost five years. I actually I actually left somewhat unfortunately you know AT&T acquired AppNexus yeah and then I and I left right before I would have gotten my uh sabbatical it's the last year that they were doing sabbatical oh, so no. I would have been able to take like a nice three weeks add some vacation onto that nice three or four weeks off but it worked out because they put me on garden leave so I got those four weeks anyway nice <laughs> were you there Just for the transaction what's that were you there for the transaction? I was there for the transaction, yeah. Mm -hmm. And it was a it was a doozy. I wasn't, you know, they kept it pretty tight, so I wasn't working on on the transaction directly. Obviously, like helping, but um, yeah, I was really just focused on on all GDPR and post GDP is post GDPR world at that time, right? And like and yeah. on and on the merger, like we kind of figuring out the transition and everything like that. So. What was the uh, what was the exec engagement like on privacy at AppNexus? Like, all three of us have a, 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 pretty, <laughs> a pretty um like a pretty uh direct line to this from our previous companies where where we were we were small enough that we were dealing with the, the entire executive 
team on the issue because privacy was so fundamental to what we were doing. So I was curious from your perspective when you came in and and started working really hard on GDPR, what was the exact engagement like there? Yeah, so so I'll say at first, I don't think that they took it as seriously as Julia knew it was going to be. Yeah. Uh, This is why I will say like when I realized that, like I already knew Julia was like a powerhouse, but this is when I realized it. She she literally like took those execs, you know, to like to task on GDPR and on privacy and just saying like, we gotta get out ahead of this. And she, she turned, she changed their minds. Nice. Uh, so by the end of it, by the time we like were spinning it up, you know, the CTO was our executive sponsor on it. We were meeting with him like twice a week, like as a team, like a small group meeting with him twice a week or three times a week. And she was probably meeting with him every day. And, you know, Brian was like, she was, um, Brian, the CEO, was meeting with her all the time and like really talking about this, getting in rooms with clients and talking about it. So it, she really, she turned it around. You know, I think, I think a lot of executives at smaller ad tech companies, they have so many things that, that they have to think about to keep their business afloat, right? Like they, they were just like, there's so many possible things for them to focus attention on. So getting someone to focus on this before anyone really understood how much it was going to like start shifting the industry was huge. Just goes to show you how far that has come when Brian O'Kelly testified in front of Congress about, about these very issues. So if, you know, we like to pump up our friend Julia, but that's legit. Like she really, yeah, I think, yeah, she like, change the industry in some ways, like really sh- not change, but like push the industry, the whole industry. Um, so she's so, um, you like to pump so, her up though. <laughs> yeah. She's so technically strong. How did you, um, approach that? Like, did, did, was, oh, that, man. was that your approach too? Yeah. So I really believe, I mean, Pedro can tell you, I like to get in the, we- I love being yes. on this stuff. Like uh, the hardest thing actually about, uh, like it, advancing in my career has been that like at some point you have to start balancing not being in the weeds as much with like you know because you can't do all the work you have to let other people do the work and you have to manage that I think more strategically which is great I like thinking strategically but like the best way to think strategically is to understand the work and so I like I mean this is what I learned from Julia the best place you're going to learn is from an engineer like if you can figure out how to talk to them that's the hard part if you can figure out how to talk to them that is the that is the way you learn and the next hard part is how do you influence them like how do you influence the people who are actually building the thing that they need to be on board with what you're saying she taught me all that how do you, um, how do you do that how do you exactly very gingerly yeah you i mean you know like you gotta you have to force them to live in the gray because yeah. they don't like a lot of technical folks, they don't like to live in the gray. They want, you know, they'll come at you and say, just give me some principles and I'll just like apply them to everything I do. And you're like, eh, sorry, this is a moving target. Like you're going to do this thing. And then someone's like, Apple's going to swoop in some, sorry, some company, some big platform's going to yeah, swoop we can, in. We can say Apple. We can say Apple. Are they always want the requirements? What are the requirements? Well, they, they, not only do they want the requirements though, um, they want binary requirements. Like you yeah. can either do this, or you can do that. It's either zero or one. And that is just never going to be the, the recommendation, right? It's like, well, you've got a spectrum of choices and we've got to apply certain 
tests to these, one of them being the very empirical eye test, right? Which yeah. drives them nuts, right? And then after we're done with the eye test, we've got to do the pacing tests, right? And then we've <laughs> got to do the ear test. And so like, they, you know, engineers look at you like you're a crazy person, right? And it's like, when you start getting into conversations, I think, and, and I've already been able to watch Anjali do this really well, but like, you know, sometimes it's like, it's less about telling them where, what the X's and O's of their work is and more trying to point out the ambiguity that we're dealing with, right? And then have them kind of lay a plan that sort of walks that minefield, but it's also flexible. That's the hardest thing, I think. I don't know what you guys think about it, um, but that's the hardest thing, thing I think there is in trying to influence an engineering process is having them build contingency and flexibility into it. Like they're very like, we're gonna get from A to C and then, and then these are the eight steps to get there. And it's like, well, on step four, we might have to like make, take a little detour depending on what happens in two weeks by, you know, or what's said in the news by some guy who knows nothing about this, but it's gonna change everything, right? Like, and that's the hardest part, at least from where I sit. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's right. Flexibility in the process and also flexibility in the outcome. Oh, you get very good. Yes. Like you have to be prepared that you have to shift what you're, what you think is going to happen. I think that's really hard, especially for product teams. I know this is not what we're supposed to be. We're supposed to be talking about fighting the power, but anything, yeah. product teams, I think this is hard for, this is hard for product teams because they're gold against like getting something done by the end of the quarter, by the end of the half, like they, they have a specific outcome that they need to get to a specific number they need to hit. And uh, that just isn't how it works in privacy, right? Like, especially in the environment we live in right now, where like we don't even know what next year is really going to look like you know like we don't know what six months from now is going to look like completely we can we can as pedro likes to say we can crystal ball, we can look into our crystal ball and we can give the best advice possible and we can try and guide them but we don't we don't know for sure like right. it's not we don't have a determinative process we can't do that um and we're not gonna be able to give you that it's very predictive and a lot of the times like the martian the martian the margin of error, the Martians come. The margin of error is, is big. It's not over. It's not over, man. They'll be here in a week. Yeah. Speaking about fight the power, though, like I do want to ask something about this, Anjali, because like this is a unique episode in the sense we both work at the same place and kind of do the same thing. Yeah. Um, and like from the outside looking in, you've been at Facebook longer than I have. Obviously, I've only been here a month and change. You've been here, uh, what is it now? Like almost two years? Almost two years? Yeah, two years. So you've been at Facebook for a while now. Um, my take is that a lot of the controversy around Facebook, well, it's two things. One, um, obviously, and Facebook has admitted this, like there's a lot of work to be done in transparency and in improving the way information is shared and disseminated on Facebook. We know that. Um, and there's lots of brilliant people working on those problems to try to figure them out. Um, the other thing though, that is a little less Facebook specific is the tremendous disruption that like social media, and it's not just Facebook, it's TikTok, it's YouTube, it's Snapchat, it's Facebook, it's Instagram, it's whatever, WhatsApp. Um, the tremendous disruption to the status quo and to the hoarding of power that social media platforms have, right? And a lot of what Public Enemy talked about was like telling truth to power. Yep. And I think social media in a lot of ways, tells a lot of truth to power, even if that truth is a lie, which is your power hangs from a thread and it requires our acquiescence and cooperation for it to work. And regardless of your point of view on social media, whether it's radical, right, wrong, 
productive, not productive, constructive, destructive. It is an, all of that combined into one big thing is really a testament to the power of the populace and the people and the amount of uh, change that can be driven by just a random person out there with a big microphone. And I think that threatens a lot of policymakers and threatens a lot of civil society types who derive their power from silence and acquiescence in a lot of ways. And so I think while there's a lot of things that need to be improved, and I mentioned that a second ago, and there's a lot of people at a lot of companies working on fixing, you know, we don't want to disseminate false news or terrorism or anything like that. Um, there's this other piece, which I think is just as important. And I don't think we should like quell it. I, I think the amplification of individual and group voices without the need to work through traditional channels is a beautiful thing. Thoughts? I, I yeah, I, I totally, actually, Andy, I'll let you go. Cause you don't, you don't work, you don't work at a social media company. So. <laughs> I mean, um, I have a lot of thoughts on this. It's really, it's really of the moment, of course, right? We, we are without, let's use Twitter as an example, without Twitter, the, the president who is a horrible person doesn't have the, the amplification methods that, that he might otherwise have. So his horrible messages are amplified at a time when the country needs other messages to be amplified. However, what is also great about Twitter is that other voices are amplified too. And so you have science voices, you have people speaking truth to power directly to him yeah, on Twitter, like me, I told him to fuck off because he's a yeah. jerk. Like, like, so, yeah. but so, like, from 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 a small, you know, f you, or, or like you're crazy, to Andy Slavitt, who used to be, you know, in in the Obama administration, speaking about actual health related COVID issues that matter, so that you can get that balance that you need. I think that the and then now I'll let you guys comment because this is where your job comes in to like help us filter and help understand like what is truth and what is complete and utter um, dangerous garbage. So, so Andy, I think this is really interesting because I think, you know, part of the problem we're dealing with here is that we live in a society where there is a longstanding, right? Like a longstanding belief that the way to get to truth is to let everybody speak and the truth will rise, you know, will rise to the top. And that theory come, came about at a time when like it, only certain people had the ability to speak. Exactly. And so, uh, and, and there, was a, there was a different premium put on certain things, right? On edge on, for instance, if you only have out of a hundred people, if only 10 people actually are able to speak, and have access to educational materials and they can, they can understand the whole spectrum of voices that are out there because they, there are only 10, right? But like um, in a world where everybody has a microphone and, and Pedro, I'm, gonna, I'm just gonna alter one little thing that you said, cause you said whoever has the biggest microphone, but actually I don't, I think the point is you don't even have to have a big microphone. You just have to say something kind of at the right time in the right way and uh, who knows, you might be the next, you know, internet superstar. And so um, I think the, that balancing that, that's what we haven't figured out yet. That's not a problem with social media per se. That's a problem with the internet, a problem and a benefit, right, is both. And so, um, because for every Trump, you have 
a Black Lives Matter protest. Right at Thunberg. That's right. That's right. right. So you have you have people able to push back. So like people able to organize, people able to get pulled together, people able to find their communities, right? Find their communities that they weren't able to find when they were just themselves alone in their town and their, you know. So I think I think that is. that is huge. Sorry, I don't know if you can hear. There's like a delivery happening at my house in the Sorry. back. <laughs> um, it's and so your, it's your bunker supply. It's the feds. It's the feds. We're done. I, I think it actually may be my husband signing for his uh, birthday gift from my brother right now. Um, nice. So uh, yeah. So um, I think I'm. This is the best. Tell him to say hi. Tell him to say hi. Now he's going to show up. He's he's like wearing his pajamas. He's not going to come. This is his last day of work. This is his last day of work. Okay, good. Congratulations, by the way. Yes. (laughs) Please, please, please save us. Please, please save us. Um, Yeah, so, so, uh, like, I, I think that's right. I think we have to figure out how to bring the truth to the top, right? Like, how do we help bring the truth to the top? But you don't want to completely stifle people who, you don't want to stifle disagreement. It's hard to tell what's not truth versus, di- just, like, there's a line, right, between purposeful misinformation and different beliefs. And I don't know that we have figured out how to find that line. Like, I'm not, I want to just be really clear. I'm not defending purposeful misinformation or even misinformation in general. You know, you all know, you both know I have very strong opinions about <laughs> what should and shouldn't be allowed in terms of like how, what people are able to say, but um, in those kinds of forms. But I do think there's a question of like separating difference of opinions from misinformation. And I don't know that we should be stopping all difference of opinions because that pendulum could swing the other way very quickly right what's the framework, what's the framework within which you all you don't have to tell me exactly what you're doing right because that's your job but what's the framework within which or the lens within which you are working on this topic and you could also just speak sort of broadly about what you think about you know how people responsible for these things and social media companies are attacking it but what's the like approach well, I, I can tell you like super high level, Andy, like I think it's two pronged, right? It's about fairness and it's about truth, right? If you're not telling the truth, nobody wants to amplify your message and you can determine whether a fact is a fact or not, right? There's no such thing as a false fact, even though some people will tell you that there is. So like de-emphasizing lies, I think is a strategy across all platforms right now, yeah. right? Um, And that's difficult to do in the context of like a president where you have to now weigh the truthiness of what they're saying versus the value of hearing from the president because of who they are. And that's a hard thing. Twitter has a hard time figuring that out. Facebook does. Like it's a hard issue. It's much easier with me. If I go on there and say vaccines are causing uh, COVID-19 vaccines are causing cancer and, uh, you know, wear aluminum foil uh, around your head so that you don't get radiation poisoning from police sirens, you can just mute me. But if Donald Trump says that, well, you got to let the people know that he's a quack because like he's running the government. And so I, I think it's a difficult thing. And again, it's not it cannot be formulaic or prescriptive and it's going to require judgment. And it's not we're not going to nobody's going to get it right all of the time. That's what makes this hard. I think the other component of the whole thing is fairness. Right. Like when people are actually articulating opinions, which you can't say that's true or false. That's the way you feel. 
like let's say I feel marginalized and then there's a group that says, well, but you're actually not being marginalized because we think that it's fair. That's a debate that's worth having, balancing the voices there in a proportionate way to how they exist in the actual world is important. And what I mean by that is, I know there are actual scientists who really believe that climate change has, is not a human effect and they can point to some evidence about that. But we know that the consensus among scientists is that that's not the case, that the case is that human beings intervention on the planet is accelerating the change of climate on earth. Well, I don't think it makes a lot of sense to like the Fox News or CNN model to have a climate den change denier scientist on one side and then a, cli a climate change proponent on the other and have them debate. To quote Colbert, what would be more fair is to have 99 climate change scientists versus one on the screen and 99 of those folks sit there and say, yeah, cool, nice point. But the 99 of us think that it's this other thing. Social media is actually better suited for that, where old media is not. Fox News is never going to have 100 people on a panel and 99 of them have one position. But on Twitter, if you say something wacky, people are coming for you, right? And a lot of the times they're coming for you with facts. People aren't as dumb as the media makes it seem that we are. We are not stupid. Look at the election. The Don't Americans, seven million more Americans voted for sanity than not, right? Like, you know, um, and that, there's a political component to that, which, you know, can be debated. But also, I think people want to return to, I think you said this yesterday, Anjali, like, I don't want to wake up in the morning every day and just wonder what the president's up to, right? And wonder if that means that by 6 p.m., like, I'm going to be in a bunker. Like, I think regardless of politics, a lot of people reacted that way. And if you go on the internet, you can see some general consensus. One more thing I'll say, and then I'll be quiet, because this is important. Um, for all the QAnons and, like, radical whack jobs on left and right that you'll find all over social media. There are Black Lives Matter movements, which was a wave that started on Facebook and has changed the world for the better, has raised awareness about something that would be impossible. Traditional media has always had cameras and has always had reporters. Why does it take an, an, an amateur to bring attention to the George Floyd situation, right? Well, because that amateur happens to be standing there. That citizen was there. And you their ability to project a message that's important and shared it all over the world and it has changed the world. Standing Rock is another example. Standing Rock, Black Lives Matter is a manifestation of what was happening at Standing Rock. Native American people, well, we don't have to get into the plight of Native Americans, you know, we all know and understand how sad that has been in the history of this country. What a sad chapter, it's not even a chapter, like it's just a dialogue as the country has advanced. Um, but, but for social media, people would not know what was happening at Standing Rock. There were people standing in front of like armed like mercenaries paid by big oil companies to protect their sacred lands, right? And risking their lives and getting hosed down and, and, and gassed in like cold temperatures. Where was the media? Nowhere until this started showing up on social media. And then it became, you know, the Standing Rock phenomenon where we saw what some of the big corporate interests were doing on lands that had been promised and been held sacred for, you know, whatever, 2000 years. And all of a sudden we're going to draw, build a pipeline through it. So anyway, it amplifies important movements. And I think that far outweighs the fringe. We still have to work on that stuff. Misinformation and truthiness matters. There are billions of dollars and tons of talent focused on those things. 
all across companies like Facebook, not just at Facebook. And we'll, you know, we'll have to figure out what right feels like, but it's not going to be perfect, right? Like, I just don't think that's a feature. Anyway, that's me on my bully pulpit. I'll be quiet now. But I'll actually say, I'll actually say, uh, yeah, I agree with that. I mean, I think this is true of any form that what's happening right now with the internet and social media is true of any form of media, right? Like you could say about the TV and the civil rights movement, right? Like the TV brought the civil rights movement into people's homes, people who lived in their white towns with their perfectly manicured lawns and had no idea what was happening. All they heard was the, was the biased news that they were seeing in their paper every day until they saw images, images of children, children being hosed, you know, shot with, I mean, um, hit with fire hose, fire hoses and, and with the dogs, like, you know, I just read about, I was just reading a lot more about the children's March um, in, in, Alabama. And I think um, that like, it's just that imagery is not something you could get from a newspaper where the people who decide what goes in the newspaper are specific to your local town and are like, are just, you know, have the same biases that you do. But when you're exposed to the broader national media that changed things, but there are negatives to TV too, right? Like people, oh, it rots your brain and kids are going to sit inside and watch TV all day. And they're not going to have relationships anymore. They're just going to be looking at this box all day. Like those things happened with TV also. And they're happening now with the internet and all that, what we need to do is find solutions to the problems, not say that we got to throw the whole, like, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Right. And so I think that that is, that is right. The, the internet social media have has brought that into people. Now I think the problem, the problem that I see and that I think is real are these filter bubbles, right? Like is confirmation bias because it's happening on both sides. It helps, it helps, you know, you can start a movement on Facebook because everybody who sees your posts already believes in what you believe in and they're already at the place um, where, where they're gonna, you know, where they're gonna, they're gonna latch onto it. And that's true on Twitter too, right? If you look at like, uh, tweets, not from the president, but from like just, you know, right wing or left wing pundits, like all the, the responses, not all, 90% of the responses are, yeah, we agree with you. We agree with you, right? Like, I think um, these filter bubbles, they are something that we have to really think hard about because people don't. I think they know what to show you though, too, right? So you're, <clears throat> when I, if I click on the, on the replies to a Trump tweet, I'm seeing a lot of like, debunking you know as opposed to what which would not happen you know yeah like i agree with this hogwash so but i'll say this andy like to both of your points here i I think we have to be careful because like politicians don't realize what they're doing and by if you over-regulate establishment social media which is a weird thing to say but like if you think twitter facebook youtube as kind of the, the, the Triforce, you know, and then a bunch of others. I'm not trying, you know, TikTok obviously is nothing to trifle about and there's a bunch of snap and snaps out there. And there's a bunch. But if you take the like, uh, like established social media companies and you rip them to shreds, right? And they have less resources to manage some of this problem. Um, they're not going to do it as effectively. And then the other thing is, if you encourage users to leave these platforms that actually have the resources to implement change and police, and then move to platforms where none of that is regulated. And then you live in an actual filter bubble. And, and we all know what I'm talking about because it's out there. Um, now you, what you've actually created is a silo of nonsense. 
And I can't, I'm not going to sign up for that radical right social media platform. I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to go there and police it. But if I see garbage on my Facebook feed, and I'm not just saying things I disagree with politically, I'm saying false, false, falsehoods and non-truths. Okay. If I see non-truths on my Facebook timeline, I'm flagging it. I'm not going over to a parlor to do anything. Right. And, and so anyway, to Angelique's point, like, I think you're like, you're, you're not only, there's always going to be bubbles, but if you create impenetrable bubbles now you've really got a problem at least that's my take yeah no i i i agree with you i mean let me say that this is part of why i like groups like being able to be part of communities and groups because then you're getting your information or, or your your differences of opinions or whatever even even falsehoods they come in a community where people feel maybe hopefully a little safer to to respond and they respond maybe with a little bit of a different take than they do to a politician who says the same thing, right? Who you, everybody like thinks should just, if you're putting it out there, like you should be able to take it if you're a politician. And I, I do agree with that actually, but like, um, but I think, I do think we need to think about how do we get people to see um, media? Maybe it's the story, the news articles that are put in front of them, those kinds of things that are different than what they might normally see. Maybe not completely, they don't have to be like the other side, right? Like I'm not saying like, I wanna see Breitbart start showing up in my in my feed or like, I, I'm not following Breitbart on Twitter, right? Like, I don't want that. But like things that are maybe not, you could very easily fall into a spot where you are getting like just Occupy Wall Street all day long, right? I don't want that either. I don't want that either. Yeah, same, same. So, so like, I think I think that's the that's the hard part because people actually don't want like here, here's the unfortunate part these platforms all of them they want people to stay engaged of course right like that's part of what they what their business is and so to do that if people don't like what they're seeing they won't stay engaged right like you're not going on parlor because you're not going to like anything you see it's just going to make you angry and like and you don't have any interest in that so you won't get engaged there so how do you give people information and keep them engaged give them information that they don't that they don't necessarily want to see and keep well, them or or do what twitter and facebook and others are trying to do which is okay well look your timeline is your timeline but if something that our independent fact checkers determined is false shows up on your timeline. Well, there's going to be a little thing under it that says, Hey, click here. <laughs> you know, that you might want to question what you're reading because there's some, and look, and then it's up to you to decide the kind of person you want to be. Like, I don't think it's social media's job to make people change who they are or like change their values that are inherent to them. Like, I don't, I just don't think that's the role of journalism either. Like it's to provide people with information and verify it's truth and, 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 try to verify its truthiness. And I think what's making journalism, like traditional journalism and politicians extremely uncomfortable is that if you lie now, someone's gonna call you on it, period. Like, period. Someone's gonna call you on your lie. You're gonna get a lot of fans that are gonna buy your lie. But I think what's gonna happen is you're gonna have to deal with the backlash of the lie. And that just wasn't the case even 10 years ago. Um, and then journalists job is changing. Like they don't get to decide anymore what's important to me. Like the local news, if you watch local news in any city, it's murders, car accidents, uh, fraud, and uh, like um, DUIs for 30 minutes. That was 10 years ago. 
Now they can't do that as much. They have to give people information related to what they know people are interested in. And where do they go to find that out? Social media, right? And it's like, okay, well now the news of the day in Atlanta has to be about something else because people don't care about this. Well, they do, but we're not gonna emphasize this issue because it's not what people are interested in. The media doesn't get to dictate to me what's important anymore. They have to listen to me to figure out what I'm thinking about. And then I think the next step for the media should be, okay, cool, well, here's what the public is interested in, COVID-19. Let's go get facts. Let's go get facts about it and share that. I agree with you, except I think, um, I think that what we see every day actually, like, it's not telling me what I want to see, but it is kind of telling me what I want to see. I know what you mean. Who I am, and I know my opinions and my beliefs. And I'll tell you a story. My uh, my um, aunt and uncle, they immigrated here in the seventies. My, my parents are very, or, or I would say were, they still are, or were very close to them. They helped my parents when my parents came here. They helped them settle in. They helped, they picked up my mom at the airport when there were no phones and she didn't have any way to call my dad. You know, like they did, they did a, a lot for my family. And my parents went to visit them a few years ago. Um, I think back in maybe 2015 or 2016, they live in Atlanta. And Shout my out to dad, yeah. My dad said that he could not, this is his one of his, this is his cousin, almost like his brother. He said, I don't know if I can go back there because uh, they had Fox News playing the whole time. And he was like, and their opinions, their beliefs have changed as a result of that, right? Like they are, they're immigrants and they're anti-immigration, right? They are immigrants. They came and they, are, they faced a lot of racism when they came because the early seventies, immigration, like immigration just opened up to Indians in the sixties, you know, like it was like they were completely, and they have changed their positions all around, completely around. And to the, and my dad said, it, it was, it's hard to, it's hard to see that. And he thinks, and I, I think this is probably true. It's a result of watching Fox news 24 yeah. hours a day. Right. Yeah. And so, so I think like, yes, they don't, the media doesn't get to tell me what stories I'm interested in, but actually, even though we don't realize it, the media is always influencing what it is we're interested in. I think you're right, but it it varies by generation. Media cannot tell Generation Z what to think, period, hard stop. You know why? Because they don't watch that shit. And that's why they're worried. I don't know a single 16-year-old that's interested in any way in television. Hard stop. Like they don't, they don't care. And so the media is losing that grip, but they have a grip on your uncles. They have a grip on my parents, well, uh, my, my, um, on people in my family. Um, uh, and because that's the way that they absorbed information. I mean, my stepdad still reads the newspaper, right? Like, you know, they, these kind of things. Um, and so like, there is a disproportionate influence on advanced generations. And I'm telling you, these Z kids don't care. They don't care. Like they don't even use Facebook. Like these kids are in this other plane of information. I mean, they're, it's Instagram, it's TikTok, it's Snapchat, and the rest is leave me alone. And that's where they get a lot of their stuff. But more importantly, like they don't have a lot of time for at least, and I guess obviously all this is anecdotal, but like they, my impression of Generation Z, which I find really positive is they don't have a lot of time for pontification. They're not interested. Like they're just not interested. True, do you think that's true outside of our echo chamber? So if you look at Generation Z, we all, you know, happen to have a per certain progressive persuasion. Yeah, yeah. But. What if, is it like that in Texas? There's Generation Z in Texas. There's Generation Z in, you know, 
places uh, that are are less progressive. I'll just give you I this hope, example. I hope, truly hope, that that the younger generation is more progressive generally by nature. But I don't know. I don't think. But I'll, I'll say this thing: my generation, millennial, and I'm an old one, right? Um, I just talk about the image of the Latino and black male for me on in media as I was growing up: drug dealers, alcoholics, yep. immigrants laborers this is how latinos are portrayed to me by the media forever like until like my whole life and, and that's just the way it was right um generation z don't think so if you guys don't have a tiktok account or an instagram i know we're on instagram watch them go on reels go on tiktok and watch them there was an entire movement this year of young white kids this is not political by the way young white kids exposing their parents racism on tiktok Literally with their phone saying, mom, Black Lives Matter, their parents saying something ridiculous and them coaching their parents through this. I mean, it was an entire phenomenon. My generation, first of all, didn't have that activist spirit. And second of all, I mean, we're talking about little white country kids challenging their parents on social media in their parents' homes, you know, for the world to see. Like, this is a way of, uh, of behaving that I've never seen before. Um, and that I think is going to change the dynamics of the public dialogue. It's not that these kids are growing up liberal. It's that these kids have too much information to be fooled by tropes like my generation was, where, you know, Blacks and Latinos have a propensity for violence and alcoholism. Those are tropes perpetuated by media and Hollywood that are untrue. They're actually false. And it's taken me adulthood to realize that those are false tropes. These kids won't have that built into them. They just won't. I mean, I think that they have less, they have more information so they don't have to have that built in. But Andy, I do, I do wonder that in, in a lot of communities, especially not close, like a lot of communities in the, in the middle of the country, a lot of communities in, in the South, they don't have, well, maybe not in the South so much, but like in, no, I guess even in the South, they don't have as much exposure necessarily, actually even in the Northeast, right? They don't have exposure necessarily to other communities. And so it is good. The internet brings that exposure to their door and that is hugely beneficial, but it isn't clear to me that that's what they're seeing when they open up their feeds. Yeah. Like they might not, they're not, if I'm in the middle of the country and I'm uh, like a little white kid living in a super conservative town and I open up my TikTok, am, am I seeing those kids who are challenging their parents? I don't know. I don't know. And like, I, you know, I'm also a Pedro, Pedro, I think we might, um, we might, we're like at the same, I don't know what year you were born. I was born in 1982. So I'm like right on the 81. edge. Yeah. So I'm like right on the edge also of millennial. And, um, and I know like when I went to college, I had a lot of friends from college and law school. I had a lot of friends from like the Midwest and, and from these towns, from these towns. And they, uh, my friends are progressive, but like their parents and their communities, their friends, their communities, they were not, you know, like they just, they aren't, they were not, they are not. And they moved to New York and they remained not, you know, like you can, like, these are people living in the city, <laughs> not like they're so ingrained in their beliefs. And I don't know that they're getting exposure to these things, Pedro. I don't know that they're getting that exposure when they open up a, a super personalized feed. I get what you're saying. My, 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 my only response to that would be at least now they have the chance. You couldn't, you cannot control what CNN displays. You cannot control what Fox News displays or MSNBC. You can play around on your feed. And if you're even have an inkling of curiosity, 
find out about anything you want to. I could not do that when I was 15 years old. I could only absorb the information that was available to me by the people deciding what was going to be available to me, which weren't Latinos. The textbooks were written by white people for white people. Every piece of information I consumed until I was 25 years old was curated for me by people that had nothing to do with me. Yeah, um, that is not the truth today, at least in my opinion. I completely agree with that. There's more avenues for challenging, uh, challenging beliefs, I think now. And, and that, that I totally agree with. And if you can catch kids when they are in their most curious stage, when they are, aren't, when their brains are still thinking about how to form their opinions and stuff, I think that that's right. You can, you can really um, help influence them to think more broadly about the world. I think we've landed on one of the critical issues. Like, and I'm really glad there's people like you working in these kinds of companies to highlight these kinds of issues, because this is the kind of issue that the companies that are, are, are responsible for social media are, are highlighting, right? And are, and are talking through, they're very not simple. <laughs> and so, and there's technology challenges, there's ad model and business challenges that, uh, that weave into all of this. So like um, we have to, we have to wrap up pretty soon, but I, I just wanted to highlight like the importance of those, that, that those points that we're just discussing at the end here, like that that's why there's hope you know, to, to figure this stuff out because people are thinking about the complexity of these things and, you know, they're important to shine the light on them, I think. Yeah, and Andy, I'll say, I'll say one thing, like the thing I pull out of this, which I think is really true for com like companies need to be thinking about is what we're talking about right now, uh, what we were talking about, I mean, is, is getting more voices into people's brains, like getting more voices in the room, essentially, right, to challenge your ideas. And I think the one thing I, would, I, I think is really important, I think every company needs to be doing this, and, and I will fight for this until the day I die, is we need more voices, more diverse voices in the rooms of power, even within the companies like we work for in every and that and that I agree a hundred percent and that includes conservative voices like I just want to make sure like it's clear like there's nothing wrong with having a conservative worldview at all and I think where you live and who your parents are and all that stuff will influence that and that's okay uh, and we need to hear from them too what we need to de-amplify are the fringes and extremes on both all sides there's no two sides on all sides and just allow for fair thoughtful dialogue by people who care. And it doesn't matter then what your point of view is. If you've checked those three or four boxes, that the dialogue is important. And I agree with you, Anjali, like we, we need to make sure that when big strategic decisions are being made about anything, whether that's corporate, government, healthcare, whatever, that unlike in the past, um, you have a diverse group of expert voices speaking from the positions or angles that they come from, so that we, it, it'll be harder to come to consensus, but whatever we decide on, hopefully will be the best overall for most people. We're nowhere near, we're nowhere near the panacea on that, but I think, I do think no. there's evidence that that's getting better and there's going to yeah. be a cabinet and that cabinet's going to be um, more diverse than the last cabinet. And so we're going to try to keep going here. And, and so um, and shout out, to, shout out to Chuck D and Flavor Flav for having this discussion when it put their lives at risk. True story. Like it was dangerous to do what these guys did. Yeah. They did it anyway. I could see a Puerto Rican flag on your wallpaper back there. I think I see Thurgood Marshall. It's hard for me to make it out. I think I see Frederick Douglass back there. Um, you know, 
shout out to like Pan-Africanism of the 90s, which shaped a lot of people's identities that were growing up in the 90s. Uh, like Guilty. me. Still shaping. Still and it's shaping. still shaping the world. It's still, yeah. Chuck D has, we, you know, in, in, the, in rap culture, we say you got a lot of sons, meaning a lot of people follow in your footsteps. Um, Chuck D has a lot of sons and daughters that have followed in his footsteps. And, uh, you know, shout out to everything Public Enemy did cause, and still does because it's unbelievable to me. Yeah. Awesome. Anjali, thanks for being here. Thank you. Go enjoy the rest of your day off. Go have fun. Yeah, yeah. Thanks, guys. I'll talk to you Bye. soon. All right. Bye.